Hello, Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. This is Pastor Bryant Owens, and once again, we have another week where we cannot meet together. Know that I miss you. Know that I pray for you. Know that I long for a time for us to gather together, all of us, here at the church, here in All Good Tennessee. Today, I would like for us to continue this idea that we looked at last week of Resurrection Sunday. I just feel like we need to explore just a little bit deeper this idea of resurrection in the church, what this means to the gospel, and how do we understand what is happening here with resurrection and the promise that we have as Christians who are in the blood of Christ. How does this look in Scripture? We need to understand it from that perspective. So please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll be reading from verses 35 to 49. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Verse 42. So, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven." Pray with me, please. Dear Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. And this concept here of the resurrected body is an idea from you, a truth from you that is real, that is active, that is guaranteed as a promise for your faithful. And so God, I pray right now as we listen to the reading of your word, as we try to understand what does this new body mean, this resurrected body, what does it look like? What does it mean for us to die and then wait for the resurrection? Father, there is so much out there in human history 
of thinking about this that is confusing. Even today, Lord, there is confusion of this understanding from your word. And so, God, I pray right now you would cause us to understand exactly the truth here as you have taught it. Love us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Last week, we clearly understood the truth of the Scriptures that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That is an undeniable fact. It is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Without it, there is no hope. Without it, our sins are not redeemed. Without Christ's resurrection, we are still under the control of death, which is the penalty of sin. But it is through Jesus Christ that we have now been released, we have now been set free, and we are now belonging to Him in His blood if we believe and we hold dear to the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and for me. And we embrace that our sins are forgiven. The, the, the bigger part that we have here that Paul is pointing out is, is just as Christ rose from the dead, just as Christ now exists in heaven beside his Father, just now, uh, just as Jesus Christ rose from the dead in a new resurrected body, those who are in Christ have the same promise, the same guarantee that we too will inherit a resurrected body. Now, what does this look like? But first of all, let's, let's understand that what Paul lays out here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that there are clearly different types of bodies. Now, now I hate to th- say it this way, but it, it just cannot be avoided. Evolutionists, those who think that all living creatures are all connected as the same flesh, are mistaken here. Take a look at what Paul tells us. He clearly makes it, makes out the point here. In verse 39, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. What he is doing here is he's laying out the, the, uh, the argument, the truth that there are various kinds of bodies. Every living creature possesses a different form of body. Now, what Paul is trying to show here is that for us, there is such a thing as the earthly body, And then after the resurrection, there is such a thing as the heavenly body. We need to understand the difference here in what Paul is talking about. The earthly body is what is referred to in Scripture as the flesh. If we are living in the flesh, we see in Scripture that this is not desirable because by living in the flesh, we are pursuing the passions and the emotions and the feelings of the flesh, and that is sinful. It takes us clearly away from God. But this flesh, this earthly body, is something that is temporary, that it will eventually stop. I mean, we see the parameters of this in our current circumstance with the the rise of the COVID-19 pandemic. Why is it that we are so spread out? Why is it that we are isolated? Why is it that we must now fear whether or not an infection is going to kill us? It's because our flesh is weak. Our flesh is temporary. It is not here permanently. Paul says that the flesh is perishable. But then there is a heavenly body, a second type of body, that we as Christians are promised after Christ. 
Now, it's interesting that Paul uses the idea of the earthly body and flesh for that which is perishable, but the heavenly body is imperishable. The the idea of the heavenly body is not connected to the Greek term of flesh at all. It is a uniquely, uh, it's a unique word that implies essence or substance of who we are. So we have the flesh, which is the earthly body, and that's what we have right here as we touch our skin and our body. But then there's the heavenly body that will have form, but it is a form that is not Uh, It doesn't waste away. It doesn't die. It is imperishable. Now, Paul does not argue here a resurrection of the flesh. That's an important point because the flesh is that part of our existence that is temporary and actually sinful. Paul, instead, he teaches the truth of a transformational event through death. He says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, beginning in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So here he points out the difference of the flesh, the the perishable, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Only the imperishable can go into the kingdom. So if our flesh is perishable, how is it that we enter the kingdom of God in heaven? There has to be a transformation to a body that is imperishable. Look here in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. What is Paul talking about here? Well, verses 50 through 53 here uh, point out something of a final resurrection at the end of all time. That's a different teaching, but we need to understand what is leading up to this idea of resurrection. Paul tells us here in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. This idea of sleep here is an idea in Scripture that implies death. We talked about this a little bit last week, but I think it's important this week that we unpack the true meaning of this idea of sleep so that we can understand what is happening in this intermediate state, this this interim state between life, uh, death, and resurrection. The idea of sleep here in Scripture, there are two ways that the idea of sleep is used, and sometimes sleep is literal. Literally, we fall asleep. Our bodies, this flesh, needs to sleep. We see this in Matthew chapter 28, verse 13, Luke chapter 22, verse 45. Sleep is also figurative. It means to die, to pass away. This is what we're talking about with Lazarus. The figurative idea of sleep in Scripture, we see in John chapter 11, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and 2 Peter chapter 3. That's just a few of the Scriptures that report... uh, that point to this, but sleep in Scripture can either be meant literal sleep or it is a figurative way of talking about death or passing away. Whenever we think about a loved one who has passed away, when we think about death, when we go to a funeral, when we, we see the body of our loved one, we treat that body as if it has gone to sleep. 
But here's what's happening in Scripture. It's important for us to understand because the pagan idea of death is that when the, the body dies, then the existence of the human mind or the consciousness kind of just goes into this floaty, dark existence uh, uh, that just kind of has no time, no uh, place, no meaning, no purpose, and eventually fades away. We talked about this last week. That is clearly not what Scripture teaches here. In Matthew chapter 27, we see how uh, the saints were resurrected with Jesus who he rescued from the grave. These saints in Matthew chapter 27 verses 52 to 53, like we talked about last week, are saints that were spoken of as being raised from the dead. They had gone to sleep. The saints who had fallen asleep were resurrected and came out of the grave at the time of Jesus' resurrection. John chapter 11 uh, verses 11 through 15, when Jesus speaks of Lazarus as Lazarus's family and friends were upset that Jesus had not arrived in time to save their brother Lazarus. Jesus says for them not to worry that Lazarus had fallen asleep as he was in his grave. Acts chapter 7, when we read about the stoning of Stephen, as Stephen is stoned to death at the moment he dies, the passage of Acts chapter 7, verses 58 through 68 says that he fell asleep. So this idea of sleep in Scripture can be seen as a figurative way of talking about death. But when we think about sleep in the physical, in the spirit, in the flesh, we think of a sleep as, as a dream state. That's something I need to really help us understand here clearly as we understand 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this idea of resurrection, what happens between the time of our physical death of the flesh and the resurrection of the heavenly body that is imperishable in the end. There is this interim state here, and we must understand what's happening here scripturally so that we don't miss exactly what we're talking about. So how does scripture describe this sleep of death? Revelation chapter 14 tells us that this sleep is really a state of rest. It's a state of rest from the worldly labor. It's as if our physical bodies uh, are now no longer tied up and, and, and wrapped up in our daily labor and our exhaustion and our pain and our suffering. So the idea of sleep here is the sleep of the physical body. It is a rest from our worldly labors. It, it actually can be, can be compared to an analogy of Sabbath rest. When we talk about Sabbath rest, the day of rest, one day a week, every seven days we take a rest, does that mean that we just go into a dream state? No, that means a Sabbath rest is a rest from our busy activities of living. And we shift our energies and our activities to glorifying God and serving the kingdom through through kingdom service, through charitable service, through worship together, and prayer. So Sabbath rest is not a rest that is um, a dream state. It is a rest that does have activity, but it is a rest of service and prayer. Because of that, because of the rhythm of rest that we see in the seven days of creation, for six days God worked and labored and created the world, and on the seventh day he rested and called it holy. I think God in the creation narrative now sets up this rhythm 
of what we need to see in life and death and resurrection. So this state of sleep, this interim state of the soul before the resurrection of the imperishable body, what does this look like? Well, there's a long tradition in this, and so let me just try to summarize this as quickly um, and as effectively as we can. In the Hebraic tradition, in the old Hebrew tradition, uh, there is talk of Sheol. We see this a lot in the Old Testament. The idea of Sheol is a vague subterranean place, a place under the ground where the, the dead loved one, the body or the soul, uh, goes into this subterranean place, a holding place where souls live a grim life. Sheol is not a place of, of love and affection. In fact, Sheol is described often in Scripture and throughout all of uh, Hebrew literature as a place where souls live in grim, devoid of consciousness existence. Sheol is a place where there is no consciousness, really. It is a place where uh, life is grim and dreary and just non, just non-active. That would be the Hebrew tradition of Sheol. Now, the Apocrypha literature, and we don't really consider the Apocrypha literature as a canon of Scripture, but that was the literature that was produced um, in addition to the Old Testament prophets and almost seen as a bridge between the Old Testament prophets and the coming of Jesus and the New Covenant. But Apocrypha literature often speaks about uh, Sheol or Hades. They uses the term Hades mostly um, as an interim hell really. Uh, it's an intermediate state where the dead await resurrection. Now, in the Old Testament scriptures, we do see where Hades is described this way as well. Um, in Job chapter 10, Hades is described as a place of darkness. Um, in Psalm chapter 94, Hades is described as a place of silence. In Psalm 88, Hades is described as a place of forgetfulness. So we do see a, a biblical uh, pattern here of the concept of Hades, but it's never seen as a place of comfort. It's a seen as a place of, of silence, of darkness, of forgetfulness. doesn't seem very pleasant at all. Now, but the thing about Sheol or Hades that is very clear in Scripture is that God is present even in this world of spirits, and God has absolute control over the world of spirits that we talk about as Sheol or Hades. We see this in 1 Samuel chapter 2. We also see this in Job, throughout Job, especially Job chapter 26, where God declares that he is in control and he is in pres- he's present and in, in control of Hades and Sheol. Psalm 86, verse 13, and Psalm 139, verse 8 also point to this world of spirits, but also points to the idea that God in His sovereignty is in control of even the place of the dead. Now, it's interesting here that this world of Hades, this world of Sheol, this world of spirits, this is clearly where the dead go. This is that, that, that is indisputable. But, Even Jesus on the cross, as his body dies and gives up the spirit, this is what we talked about last week, Jesus, you would have to ask the question, 
Did Jesus go to Hades? Did he go to Sheol? Where did Jesus go during his time of death? He was dead for three days. He was in the grave for three days before his resurrection. So we have to ask the question, what happened to Jesus? Scripture does Scripture is vague on this, but it does kind of give us some pointers, some some direction here. And if we understand how Jesus transitioned here into his resurrected body, then we can understand exactly what will happen to us as Christians and all the Christians who have died throughout history as to what will happen there too. Jesus was clearly not left in Hades. But we get a strong implication in Scripture that he did make a visit to the underworld here, to Hades. We see this in Acts chapter 2 in Peter's sermon. We also see this in Ephesians chapter 4. And then later in, in Peter's first epistle, we see that he mentions this. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 31. Acts chapter 2, actually beginning in verse 29, and we'll read through verse 32. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. You see, that is Peter's testimony to exactly what happened with Jesus Christ. There is an implication here that Jesus was in Hades because in verse 31, he was not abandoned there. We see this further in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you flip over to 1 Peter chapter 3, we see more of what Peter is teaching here to us. 1 Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 18. And this helps us understand even deeper, more correctly, exactly what is happening here with death, burial, and resurrection. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water." Baptism, which it corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So we see here clearly in Peter's teachings that Jesus Christ, at the point of his death, He descends into what has been called Hades or Sheol, and he preaches the gospel to those who have gone on before, those who have gone on in sleep. So we have this idea of interim state. Now, the Christian perspective here is much better. The Christian perspective here speaks of an interim heaven. Just as the Old Testament tradition speaks of Hades and Sheol as an interim hell, the Christian tradition speaks of a place called paradise as we are going into the resurrected body into heaven. When the flesh dies, 
We do know this, that the soul goes to be with the Lord. This is understood. It is not a soul sleep. Our soul does not go into a state of dreaming. It does not go into a state of nothingness and just trans and unconsciousness. Our soul is clearly conscious and aware. Martin Luther describes it this way. He says, in the interim, the soul does not sleep, but is awake and enjoys the vision of angels and of God and has converse with them. This idea of paradise is what Jesus speaks about as well. We see it uh, uh, in Luke chapter 23, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he tells the, uh, the, the thief beside him, today you will be with me in paradise. Second Corinthians chapter 12, the apostle Paul even speaks about his vision of being caught up into paradise. So what does this look like? Paradise is often described in, as Abraham's bosom. We see this in Luke chapter 16. Paradise is often spoken of as the second heaven or the entry into heaven. It is uh, a place in Revelation chapter 6, something a place called under the altar. It is a kind of interim heaven. It doesn't mean a purgatory at all. That is not what Scripture teaches. It is not a place of the dead, but instead a place of superabundant and resurrected life. So at the point of a Christian's death, they enter into this place of paradise. They enter into this interim state of existence. And it is described in Colossians chapter 1 that the blessed saints on the other side are not in a dream state or, or in this a nakedness. Instead, saints who go on to the other side after death are now clothed in a resurrection body awaiting resurrection at the end of days. This changed body is what we're talking about. The theologian Donald G. Blesch says it this way, I hold that the saints on the other side are not in a state of nakedness, but are clothed in a resurrection body. They have not disembodied life, but newly embodied life. They are clothed in a spiritual corporeality. Paul referred to them as the saints in light in Colossians chapter 1. So what is it that this looks like, this state or this resurrection from death to burial to life? What this looks like is something akin to our transitioning from this flesh, which is perishable, into an immediate awareness and presence of the Lord and of the angels and of the heavenly places. It is this place we call paradise, and we are there waiting with anticipation for the final resurrection of the dead, where all would be uh, judged and all will come into being. The Reformed theologian P.T. Forsyth says it this way. He says, The dead in Christ see a more wondrous Christ than we do. The same indeed, yesterday, today, and forever, yet another. If that is what that's like, can you imagine if you understand and know Christ today, how much more beautiful and how much more glorious it will be upon the end of this physical life when we come into the presence of our Lord and we will see Him more clearly and understand Him more preciously in a way that there is no way that we can do today in the flesh. And that is a gift of our Savior Jesus Christ as He endured 
suffering for our sin as he lived just like you and I do in this flesh and he dies and his spirit is released and he takes on the perfected, resurrected body that you and I are promised. Now, we have to understand this is a very important point. Only Jesus has attained this incorruptible, eternal body. Those of saints of old, the Christians who have gone on before us, who are now on the other side, they have not yet fully embraced or been given a resurrected eternal body yet, even though they are now clothed in a resurrection state. Paul describes the promise of a final incorruptible or eternal body. That's what he's talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 49. As those who are challenging resurrection come into the churches, primarily from the Sadducees who taught that there was no spirit or angels or or any kind of spiritual existence after death, Paul is challenging, and he says in verse 34, or verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? He talks about this heavenly body that God himself has chosen in verse 38, He says here, beginning in verse 42, So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven." He tells us in verse 52 and 53 that this new body, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. It's interesting here that as we look at what Paul is telling us here, he's giving us the hope that what Christ has accomplished, he has been given and he now possesses and attains this incorruptible eternal body. And we have the same hope. After death, we are in an active, conscious state with our Lord. It has often been called the interim state. And it is often described as a state of expectation and waiting. Hebrews chapter 11 and Revelation chapter 6 speak of this time of death, this time of being with the Lord, awaiting the resurrection as a time of expectation and waiting. Are you looking forward to that? Maybe right now as you are hunkered down at home, isolated from family and friends and from work, 
You are in a state of expectation and waiting, waiting for the time when we can be released and be back together again. Can you imagine that's what it's like for the saints who have fallen asleep and are with the Lord right now, waiting for that final day when all will be accomplished and final judgment will come and all will come back with the Lord and follow Him and take over this world again and the and the kingdoms of heaven will unite and come back into reality and conquer all sin and all evil and put it away. And that's when we'll see our eternal resurrected body. In Christ and beyond death, we have the vision of God. But I think there's still a final resurrection of the body to come. We see that evidence in Scripture, as Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Yes, our bodies will die, and yes, we will take on a resurrection body, but then it is not fulfilled and complete until the final call of all of the dead at the end of time, at the final judgment. That's when the kingdom of heaven will conquer everything completely and finally forever and evermore, and we will enter into eternity, an eternal kingdom with the Father. Now we have to ask this question. When does this resurrection occur? When does this resurrection that is spoken about here occur? We know that Jesus Christ has resurrected from the dead. That is a historical fact. It is a biblical fact. He has already rose from the dead. He is now sitting at the right hand of his Father in heaven in the resurrected eternal state of what is to come for us. When does this occur? It occurs in what, it, what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. Now, we don't know exactly the time or the hour. Even Jesus speaks about this in the Gospels. But we do see a little bit of, of help here in understanding this. If you'll turn to Peter's second letter, Second Peter chapter 3 is where we will see a little bit of help in understanding when this is going to happen. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, talking about the day of the Lord and when it will come. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, there again, the idea of falling asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This is what is, this is what is referred to in scripture as the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. Look here in verse eight. But do not look, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 13 helps us understand a little bit more of this. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This idea of patience and waiting is very central to the Christian doctrine. And even as it, especially as it relates to this idea of the resurrected body, we are in an interim state after death, and then the resurrection will occur. Now, how long does that take? For you and me, it may seem like forever. But for God, as what Peter tells us, in 2 Peter chapter 3, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. That reminds us that time does not transpire the same way for God as it does for us. God is beyond time. We are limited by time. So it really doesn't matter what occurs or how long it takes after death before the resurrection. We were promised and guaranteed that in the blood of Christ, we are in paradise with Him, anxiously waiting for the day of the final judgment, for the final resurrection of the dead, the saved and redeemed and the condemned and sinful will rise and be judged. But it is those who are in the blood of Christ who will receive this eternal incorruptible, resurrected body, just like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ possesses now. That is a biblical truth. It is a Christian hope for us all. I want you to take that and ponder that. Because if this is what the end of time looks like for all of us, how does that affect us today? How do we enter into this eternal state with our Lord, the only way is through believing and trusting that Jesus Christ has bought us with His blood, that He has paid the price for our sin, and that He has overcome death for us. That's the only way that we can enter into that state. So my prayer for you is that as we continue to think about the days after Jesus died and rose from the grave, what does that mean for the rest of us? Are you in that family of God right now? Are you bought by the blood of Christ? Do you have the hope of resurrection just like our Savior does? If not, it's not too late. You can still embrace Christ right now. You can love Him. You can trust Him. You can ask for His forgiveness. Let's pray. Father God Almighty, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. I pray this afternoon, dear Lord, that You would love each and every person who is hearing these words. Lord, that You would cause them to see the true nature of who they are in this very moment in relation to a vast eternity that is beyond us. Lord, we do not fully understand the mystery 
that Paul even calls a mystery here of death, burial, and resurrection. Much less, I mean, for Jesus, that is an impossible thing for us to grasp. But for ourselves, Lord, we, we trust you in this. We know, dear Lord, that you are in control of our lives. We know that you are in control of our souls. And so, God, I pray that you would cause us to trust you in that. Teach us always in your word, Father. Show us your grace. Show us your mercy. We thank you, Father, for the promise of resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. May God bless you and may he keep you safe until we can come together again. And I'm saying, and I know, it will be coming very, very soon. God bless you. Thank you for tuning in to today's message from the Word of God. Here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, we are here to help our community to be the light of Christ to all in this area. Please take hope and comfort in the fact that this season that we're in is temporary. It will come to an end. And when it does, Jesus Christ will be glorified. At Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, we will open our doors to public worship every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. and every Wednesday at 6 p.m. To find out more about our church, please visit our website, sovereigngracebaptist.org. May God bless you and may He keep you safe.